tonight feels like my coming out since I've been in a kind of uh, coldy fog, so my voice may be a little fuzzy and strange, but uh, I'll go ahead anyway. I wanted to piggyback a little bit off of uh, Jack's talk from last night. I wanted to enter into this talk with uh, a few teachings from one of my favorite gurus, and probably one of your favorite gurus, uh, Calvin of Calvin and Hobbes. And this is a two-part teaching. The first one, uh, Calvin is in the middle of his uh, math class and raises his hand to ask Miss Wormwood, his teacher, a question. He says, Miss Wormwood, I have a question about the math lesson. She says, yes. Given that sooner or later we're all just going to die, what's the point about learning about integers? (laughs) Miss Wormwood says, turn to page 83, class. And Calvin, with his head on his desk, says, Nobody likes us big picture people. (laughs) Then he tries to engage Hobbes in the next conversation. And he's sitting on a big rock, sitting out in the forest with Hobbes. And he says, the problem with people is they don't like to look at the big picture. Eventually, we're each going to die. Our species will go extinct. The sun will explode. And the universe will collapse. Existence is not only temporary, it's pointless. We're all doomed, and worse, nothing matters. And Hobbes says, I see why people don't like to look at the big picture. (laughs) And Calvin responds, well, it puts a bad day in perspective. On top of that, we have an anonymous passage from someone who said, every day I think about dying, about disease, about starvation, violence, terrorism, war, the end of the world. It helps keep my mind off things. (laughs) So we know in actuality that opening to the enormity of suffering and the nature of reality doesn't really keep our mind off things. In fact, it begs a a very deep question. And it's about suffering. It's about why do we suffer? Is there in this mad world of so much pain and sorrow, is there a reliable refuge to be found? Is there a resting place? We may still have the same question as after you've sat for a few days or for many of you several weeks. Seeing as you do, as as the days go on, so much physical pain and mental pain, so much looking ahead and looking back, so much the mind flitting about here and there, so difficult to rest our attention in the present. We really see... We don't really have to think about or reflect about the suffering of the world. We see it in our own minds. We experience it in our own bodies. 
we recognize that there, there really is no suffering apart from beings. And as, uh, as one teacher puts it, a teacher named Sri Nisargadatta, who I like very much, and he's probably better experts on his teachings than I am, he says the world is basically as it is because people are the way they are. And as long as people are the way they are, the world's going to be the way it is. So if we really want a peaceful world, we have to have peaceful people. Peace is not something you can impose on the world. It has to come from within. And he goes on to say something to the effect that if you want to end war, you have to get war out of your own heart. So you can see on retreat so clearly both the truth of war in our own hearts, the war in our bodies, how much the suffering of the world as it begins here and is generated outwardly, the world is simply a reflection of our, of our minds. We also can sense, perhaps, the end of war from peace and contentment. And it's not so far away. Even though, of course, in the times when I may be inhabiting or caught or dwelling in a difficult mental state or working with some pain in my body, it may seem like peace is a long way off. But again, the question arises, if the only way to have peace in the world is to have peaceful people, how do we find peace? Of course, the wisdom teachings help us begin our inquiry, call it a different kind of inquiry, a meditative inquiry that uh, I I see as different than a normal kind of inquiry where we think about things and we reflect on things and imagine things. But a meditative inquiry is a silent inquiry. It's one where we directly sense the reality of this moment the reality of life, beyond our ideas. So it's, I think it's helpful to start this search for peace, search for the end of suffering in the world, um, to explore what's already here. The Buddha says that nirvana is your nature. Nibbana is your nature and it can be realized. Many teachings say, peace is your nature, and that you need not even move out of this instant to discover that. And so you hear it from all different angles, that the kingdom of heaven is within. It's here now, not after the this or not after that, but here now. So one of the ways that we can sense, perhaps, as we start our inquiry, even in the midst of a retreat where there are many ups and downs and our mind goes here and there and dealing with with an amazing array of hindrances and delights, it's helpful to start with the bare bones. What's actually happening in this moment before we think, before we remind ourselves about ourselves. So just for a moment, just as a a basis for continuing this uh, inquiry, 
let your last thought that you just had prior to this, these last words, let that last thought go. And just before the next one arises, just let your attention rest in this openness between your past thought and your next one. And what dawns quite naturally in that openness? It's not created, it's not manufactured, it simply is present in between the past and the future, just now. Some might say that peace is present, unprompted, unbidden, just available unaltered, uncreated. Some would say it's timeless, it's outside of time. Some would say limitless, you can't really put a, can't bottle it. So we can sense that there's a a natural, a natural peace. And some would call this the, the mind that's not diluted, the nature of the undiluted mind. We don't very often stay with this openness, although we get longer and longer glimpses of this kind of quietness as we go along in a retreat. But it's interspersed with an amazing array of other experiences. We tend to very quickly, as you probably noticed hundreds and hundreds of times today, take a bit of a leap a leap into, in, into your imagination, into some plan, or leap into the memory. Thich Nhat Hanh wrote a great uh, poem about this. He called it froglessness. Maybe it was even shared with you already on the last retreat, but I'll read it again. The first fruition of the practice is the attainment of froglessness. When a frog is put on the center of the plate, she will jump out of the plate after just a few seconds. If you put the frog back again on the center of the plate, she will again jump out. You have so many plans. There's something you want to become. Therefore, you always want to make a leap, a leap forward. It's difficult to keep the frog still on the center of the plate. You and I both have Buddha nature in us, This is encouraging. But you and I both have frog nature in us. That's why the first attainment of the practice, froglessness is its name. So it's often during this period of frog nature that we find ourselves clouded, absorbed, inhabiting a world of of thinking. In fact, we spend much of our lives inhabiting our thoughts, living in the dream created by our thoughts. And you probably spend a lot of today that way. It's natural, it's because it's well-practiced. What we experience in our minds, as you said, is the result of what you've practiced over and over. So it's no surprise, and it's not because you're bad or good. It's just that's what happens. 
But because we haven't so much attended to this very carefully, notice how it happens, notice its nature. Sense more and more the difference between those moments and the perhaps the simplicity, the beauty, the profundity of those moments when we're not absorbed in our thinking. And the effect of the times that we are absorbed through our lack of attention to the details, to the, to the process of what occurs. We spend a lot of our time practicing, conditioning the causes of more suffering, of more dis-ease in our lives. And you can understand this, one of my favorite poems from Noshul Kempo, if you, it's the effect of all of this. Um, you can understand this just reflecting on your practice during, uh, during this retreat. He says in his poem, Rest in natural great peace. This exhausted mind, beaten helpless by karma and neurotic thought, like the relentless fury of the pounding waves in the infinite ocean of samsara, rest in natural great peace, this exhausted mind. We get exhausted from the turmoil of being absorbed in thinking. Uh, My friend Anna passed on this tidbit of information to me uh, once about a question that was asked the the famous um, Thai master Ajahn Buddhadasa, when he was uh, very old before he died, he was asked to survey the world and you know give his opinion on the world. And you know he could have said anything about the world. You know, in fact, he could have probably given an incredible dissertation. And uh, when he finally looked up to respond to the question, he said three words: "Lost in thought." So, if you thought you were the only one absorbed in thinking, lost in thought, believe me, you're not alone. You're not alone. So we're left with the with glimpses and tastes of peace and contentment, and interspersed with amazing absorption into into our our dreams and our stories of of self. And so we're invited to. To, uh, to examine the, the nature of all that our minds do, all that our hearts do, all the movements of our hearts, all the movements of, of our bodies. That same person, Noshul Kempo, who, who wrote the poem, Rest in Natural Great Peace, This Exhausted Mind, he says the whole purpose of the teaching is to realize the nature of the undiluted mind and to see how the diluted mind works, to see how it is through our way of thinking and being and responding, reacting, that we create the causes and conditions for suffering. So that's basically what we're doing here. The idea is if we don't examine the sources and the actuality of our suffering, we end up in it. We end up stuck in it. Or we end up endlessly running from our difficulties. And in either case, there's no rest, either stuck or running. There's no rest. So each of us, whoops, each of us longs for, for that rest. Longs to be able to extend that, 
time of ease and contentment. And perhaps even begin to find ease and contentment in the midst of difficulties. Therefore, not having our difficulties have to pass in order to find relief. Instead of wiring the world up that I cannot be happy unless this goes away or that goes away, unless my pain passes, unless I get the person of my dreams or the thing of my dreams, or unless my mind quiets down, unless my, my heart opens, that's a big myth. If my heart's closed, if I feel tension in the heart, I must not be free. That's just an idea. That's just an idea. Without that idea, it's just tense heart. But with that idea, I can endlessly start strategizing how I'm going to open my heart. And there I go again. I'm lost on the wheel of samsara, searching for what's next, taking a leap forward, not missing that in the moment, closed heart is a condition that's present. And if I were really to pay attention to it, I might discover that it's a changing condition. And that it's all, that it's just doing its own thing. But if I don't notice it as a changing condition, if I don't examine that, if I impose some view about what it means, then I miss the actuality, I miss the reality of heart pain or tension in the heart. Can you possibly experience tension in the heart without it meaning something? Can we be that simple? I'd like to spend a little more time exploring the ways of the the deluded mind, since that's the the place where we live a lot of the time. And, um, And what we see our minds do on retreat. It's at this point, especially for the people who are here in the early part of the retreat where a lot of discomfort starts to arise in the body and old you know, memories and tense moods and emotions may start to arise. And there's a tendency to really start that leap forward, to, uh, to imagine what it is that will make me happy and start aiming at some future, future time, future date, and start aiming our slings and arrows at what we think is is uh, causing us suffering and, and building a bit. It's very easy to start building a case against our, the imagined source of, of pain. For me, it's been often my body in practice. For many people, it gets planted on anything in terms of the aversion, that, the levels of aversion that can arise on retreat. I remember on retreats, I don't know if you've experienced this so far, but when things are a little bit uncomfortable and I feel kind of vulnerable or raw, Sometimes if somebody would come just a little too close to me in a walking path, I could feel homicidal. <laughs> just want, and assuming, fixating on that person as the source of whatever that, that pain was. Hope, fortunately, in our practice, we can withdraw the attention from the object of our aversion, and they're endless. And, you know, people get into the food and how they don't serve enough food or how people are crowding into the line or how people are taking too much or too little, whatever it is, you can plant your attention on the objects of, of aversion or desire. But in that, we don't really explore the nature of desire itself, the nature of aversion itself. So what happens when you, when you withdraw your attention 
from that object of, of homicidal thoughts. <laughs> what do you feel? I feel an incredible tension in my heart, incredible hardness, incredible burning in the, in the solar plexus. Now, I could spend all day creating, this is another thing that, that the deluded mind does, creating a, an interesting case for the prosecution against that person. <laughs> and all the things that I'm going to do and to seek my revenge, or you know whatever it is. And when I say the word revenge, I think of my time with uh, the Burmese teacher Upandita Sayadaw, who I spent years sitting with. And he would, you know, he kind of warmed me up in, in early interviews and tell me what a good yogi I was in so many ways. At least that's the way I would interpret it. And I'd get very full of myself. And so he saw that I was somewhat prone to inflation. So he must have known that I was also prone to deflation. So in my next interviews, I'd go in and I would start reporting as you did in this special style of reporting that you did when you sat with him, just telling him the bare facts of what's happening. He doesn't want to hear your, your interpretations. He doesn't want to hear uh, all how excited you are and all of that. He just wants to hear the bare bones. So I would start to report, and sometimes he would just pick up a book and start reading. <laughs> Other times he would just, every word that came out of my mouth, he'd throw it back at me, as though I, was the, I had said the stupidest thing. Now, needless to say, I felt incredibly alarmed and angry. Now, and I would spend the next several days planning my revenge and, and thinking about how he was not going to get away with saying things like that to me. And, <laughs> and he, clearly, he had me. Had I just withdrawn my attention from, from the object, the hurt, I mean, the... Uh, the person who said the words, Upandita, and just felt the hurt or felt the burning of the rage, I might have been able to see the pain that I was continuing to cause by ignoring it and by feeling it, which I ultimately was forced to do since he didn't seem to be giving me much relief. And people don't usually give us much relief. But in feeling it, it revealed itself as a changing condition. It revealed itself as something incredibly painful that kind of tenderized my heart instead of hardened it. It showed me the fragility of the heart, how easy it is to have that sense of myself thrown off, how easy it is to have my well-being dictated by how someone or something shows up, whether it's the food and the that's being served or the the way the people are sitting in the hall, or the fact that I have pain in my back. Any condition, inner or outer, if I make my sense of well-being dependent on that, I end up tight a lot. I can't help but... These stories seem to come to me as I, um, as I talk. That last week, I was... Uh, going swimming. And I don't know, many of you who live around here may swim at the JCC in San Rafael, which is up the road. And I was driving in the parking lot, and the parking lot was very full, as it often is. And I went to the corner of the parking lot where I thought I would find a space, and I saw that there were 
there were two, a person had taken up two spaces. And I got into that same kind of reaction. I wanted to kick the guy's door in or tell him, give him a piece of my mind. But I realized that fortunately he was nowhere to be found. <laughs> He'd already gone in, was probably enjoying his swim, happily delighting in whatever he's doing. So my righteous view was this guy did the wrong thing. But who was suffering? So we have all kinds of views, ways that I fixate how things are supposed to be. And we don't realize until you get angry how much, how much that view has taken root as an egoic posture. But meanwhile, I thought, my God, my heart's burning, I'm tight, and he's sitting there going about his business. Why should I be suffering for what somebody else did? So anyway, it, it helped release, it helped me get over myself a little bit. So that we do the same thing with, with pleasure. And you see how your mind goes out of itself in search for something more pleasurable than what's going on. Whether it's that search for the end of the sitting, the bell ringing, that assumption is the classic example that I think I learned first from James. That there's this view that the bell is going to be the secret for relief and pain. <laughs> if only the bell, you know, it's that if only mine, if only the bell would ring, then I'd be happy. <laughs> See, you laugh because you recognize yourself. So we fixate on the object of, of our happiness, the bell, and assume that, and of course, when the bell rings, there is a relief. So then we keep keep up with the hypnotic, the, the kind of trance that keeps going that says, yes, things do make me happier. And they do give us a momentary relief. That's, the Buddha called that uh, lokiya sukha, the happiness that comes from satisfying hunger. But it's a happiness that's dependent on satisfying a hunger. It's not very free. So, because it's not very free in that you end up waiting a long time. You end up being unhappy until the bell rings. Now, the other alternative is to withdraw your attention from the object of the desire, the bell, to feel desire. And in fact, sometimes if you feel the desire for the bell to ring, you simply feel the life of desire, mindfully, attentively, receptively. Desire reveals itself as a changing condition. The desire goes and the bell didn't even go off. And you find yourself immersed in nowness, you could say. Maybe with the same ache and pain that, was, that may have been the, the, the trigger that gave rise to the desire for the bell to ring, but you're resting in the midst of that pain without the demand that something has to happen in order to make you happy. So we're invited over and over again on the retreat to simply feel the life of the different mental states that are presenting themselves, as opposed to staying fixated on whatever the object, whatever the person, whatever the thing is that we think will either is bringing us unhappiness or will bring us happiness. Now, we can spend a lot of our time paying attention to these movements of mind. This is what is most common and natural for each of us. So it's important that you have great tenderness and mercy as you see how much of the time 
your mind flies from pain and searches for pleasure. The same teacher Nisargadatta says, your flight from pain and search for pleasure is a sign of love you bear for yourself. It's an attempt to find relief. We don't realize that in chasing after the objects of our desire or our aversion, we end up sowing the seeds of more dissatisfaction. And we come by it so honestly, so naturally. Everything in our cultural life, and I think everything in human life, isn't, for the most part, until you hear the kind of open secret that it doesn't really work, it doesn't bring happiness. But most of the time we're told the more, the, the more you can get, the what you're becoming, how much you're doing to get to what you're becoming, all of these become the, the causes and conditions for real happiness, and they, and they aren't. The Buddha called this tendency to think that something, some changing experience, like a person or a place or a thing or uh, the, the meal or the Dharma talk even, he called our attachment, our movement of heart toward these things as a, as a source of happiness, he called it misplaced faith. There's some faith that somehow it's going to make me happy, it's going to give me real relief. And it, does, it gives a temporary relief, that lokiya sukha. Lokiya means of the world. It means you're dragged along by the conditions of the world. It's of the world, dependent on conditions. That kind of relief we get, but we don't really get what the Buddha pointed to, which is a, another kind of freedom, a freedom that's it's not about the satisfaction of some hunger, but it's about being free of hunger itself freedom that doesn't depend on what's happening. Just a few examples of uh, some of the worldly influences, just so you see that, that uh, you know, it com- comes from within people's minds and then it comes, gets spit back out and then goes back into our minds. It's kind of a, like a recycling of, uh, of bad habits. This is, uh, there's actually, the person who gave me this was... Uh, sitting the retreat. But uh, you can look to advertisements to get a real sense of, of how the, the mentality of the consumer world tries to seduce you into, into buying something or going somewhere, doing something, and makes you think that somehow you'll be better off for it. And this is a, uh, this is a little bit of a use of uh, spiritual urgency as an inducement for... Um, for shopping. This one says, uh, buy a Pioneer car stereo now because someday you'll be dead. (laughs) And then... uh, Just a few I want to share with you. This one was really hysterical. This one is is um, just an advertisement and it's got a little monk so they've got your heart ready to look for something deep and meaningful. And at the top it says, for centuries people have journeyed thousands of miles in search of insight. And then in parenthesis it says, pity they didn't think to have it delivered. (laughs) Then it says, what is the meaning of life? What is the path to eternal wisdom? What is the yin and what is yang? Some believe the answers lie at the roof of the world a remote mountaintop in Tibet, a lost valley in Nepal. 
Mind you, the journey is no easy thing. Aren't you excited? Aren't you hungry? (laughs) There are rivers to be crossed, gorges to be spanned, all manner of frightful weather to be endured. Might we suggest a less arduous course of action to, (laughs) to gain the insights you seek? Might we suggest a subscription to the Wall Street Journal? (laughs) (laughs) One last one. This is the the latest extend uh, way that this this search extends to, um, to how we relate with our bodies. Because you know, our bodies, as you can probably feel and notice if you look in a mirror, although it's sometimes a good idea to cover your mirror at retreats, but uh, if you notice, we're, we're all um, aging a little bit. This one, I lost the front part of it. Well, basically, this talks about um, the newest fad in the youth movement. Not in the youth movement, in the staying young movement, anti-aging movement. I'll just read you the first few paragraphs. This is from the New York Times. It says, on a sunny, sunny, on a sunny morning recently, an elegantly dressed woman strolled down Fifth Avenue, turned into East 72nd Street, and strode past million-dollar limestone maisonettes into the office of Adrian Denise. The patient, a fashion publicity agent from the higher rungs of New York society, asked not to be named but revealed that she visits Dr. Denise's clinic to receive her weekly dose of the 1990s version of youth elixir, human growth hormone. Dr. Denise, a trim blonde with skin that is smooth but oddly hard to the touch, is not your... (laughs) is not your average physician... A series of injections of human growth hormone at her clinic, she maintains, gives patients glowing skin, increased muscle mass, elevated sex drive, a lighter mood, sharper mental acuity, et cetera, et cetera. And it goes on to talk uh, about uh, Dr. Ronald, well, he's quoted here, Dr. Ronald Klatz. He says, we're not about growing old gracefully, Uh, Dr. Klatz says, who's the group president who practices in Chicago. We're about never growing old. (laughs) This is a little bit of a search for the future. Gary Simino, 37, a private investor in Manhattan who's been taking growth hormone for one year, said, my health and my quality of life are major issues for me. Speaking by cellular phone during a workout at the Reebok Sports Club on the Upper West Side, he says, I used to be a hedonistic yuppie of the 80s who was only concerned with his Mercedes Benz. Now I'm a hedonistic yuppie of the 90s who's only concerned about his health and well-being and who'll do anything for it. So it's not that we shouldn't do anything for our health, um, <laughs> but you can see our, it, this all engenders a kind of toppling forward into uh, hope for safe landing future. So this is one of the ways the deluded mind works. It doesn't understand that time is running out tend to get, or time is now, tend to have this view. We imagine the future, imagine the past, and somehow give them some reality as though there, there really is a future in the past. 
And we live so much in the reality of the future and the past that we don't see that they're just thoughts. Thoughts of past, memories arising in the present. Thoughts of future, picture rising in the present, we call future. As Alan Watts says, only an eternal now. Another aspect, another way that the deluded mind works, and we can see this in operation on retreat, and I've alluded to it a little bit so far, but it's this tendency that you will notice, and that you're probably noticing already, to take the basic experiences that are occurring, and as you probably heard over and over in any of the retreats you've taught or you've uh, sat, or the books that you've read, that there are only basically six experiences that happen in our lives over and over. There's seeing, there's hearing, there's smelling, there's tasting, there's you know, physical experience and, and thinking. And that the rest is a story that we tell ourselves about it. The rest is that dream world that I was talking about. And the tendency of the deluded mind is to take whatever story, whatever conclusion, whatever view or belief about something, about an experience, to be the absolute truth about that thing. And it's so easy in in living and taking the ideas and the stories about things to be true to miss the basic experience that's happening. So one simple example that happens for a lot of people, well, I I mentioned it before, the tightness in the heart, this is one. Tightness in the heart, tightness, tightness. We're asked to simply meet that with mindful attention, and it could be incredibly painful. Burning, stabbing, squeezing, aching, uh, flaming, searing, Squeeze, you know, I could go on and on. Just being with that experience is one thing. But what often happens is some meaning or significance or conclusion is added to that. My heart is tight. Not only we make the first step, even though heart is tight, even though tightness is tight, there's no self to be found in that tightness. But very quickly, mind adds a little extra story, I'm tight. My heart is tight. And in conventional conversation, you know, it wouldn't be your heart, it's my heart, and we can talk that way. But meditatively, we have the opportunity to move beneath that ordinary discourse to experience directly what the actuality, what the essence, what the nature of that experience really is. Beyond anything that we can describe, beyond anything that we can, uh, any story we can tell about it. So let's just move from my heart pain and what it means about me that I'm a, a closed-hearted person and that I need to spend an endless amount of time opening my heart and that everyone else here is probably has a more open heart than I do. And maybe someday, like all the other things in my life, I'll get better. But meanwhile, I'm not okay as I am. Isn't that the, that's the, the what we call the proliferation, the Papancha started with just tightness in the heart. So let's come back to tightness of heart. 
for a moment. Let's cut through the pattern of memory that makes the ideas about it real. And just feel tightness, burning, squeezing, tension. What happens to the suffering when we simply let ourselves feel that without adding the extra meaning to it? Pain in the knee, pain in the back. I'm not saying all the time, but it is possible. And one of the great opportunities on a retreat one can have is to make a couple different discern discernments. One is to see clearly for yourself the difference between pain and suffering. To be able to even possibly have an extremely painful or unpleasant experience and not suffer. And to see that that we have generally in our habits fused these two together as though as long as there's pain, there's suffering, and it means something serious. And sometimes it, there's a meaning to it. But often the, the extra story about it adds a lot more suffering to an otherwise painful experience. That's one thing. The other possible discernment is just the general difference between the basic experience of things and the story we tell ourselves. We will continue to tell stories about our experience. We will continue to be masterful at telling stories, convincing others, convincing ourselves. And not to make that wrong or bad, but to begin to see the difference between just the tightness of the heart and what I tell myself about it. See that there's a difference. And if you can, trust more the actuality of the experience. Don't trust so much the story. One of my friends gave me this uh, passage from Henry Audubon, where he said, if there's a difference between the bird and what the field guide book says, believe the bird. <laughs> Often, once the once this process of what we call papancha, this proliferation of thought, gets added on to the basic experiences, these six basic experiences, we tend to make a lot of, we tend to get scared and tend to try to predict what's going to happen in the future uh, and tend to freak out about things and worry and, and replay things over and over and and all that meaning that's given to things. We do that. And uh, actually there was a recent article in the New York Times where there was a long study that was done on people's capacity to predict future feelings. And it says that people are dismal at predicting how they're going to feel in the future. Yet all day long we're, there is this tendency to assume we know what's going to happen, and then often freaking out about it. You know that line, is a lot of the stuff that goes through our mind, and partly I'm talking about this tonight because we're going to include thinking in the instructions tomorrow where it's a very specific instruction for noticing the, the flow of thinking, the kinds of thinking, and, the, and just the essence of thinking itself. But uh, there's a... Um, a line from uh, Mark Twain where he says, some of the worst experiences I ever had never happened. <laughs> and this is often the 
expression of this papancha, this tendency to just uh, take our thoughts and our ideas and our our expectations and notions of what will happen in the future or what the past means to be true, and then have suffering about it. So instead, in the practice, we cut through this pattern of memory or or habit of mind and see that in the moment that thinking or feeling is another changing condition, and ultimately that it's not self, that it's not you, it's not yours, it's simply a process that occurs naturally. Just as tightness of heart occurs naturally, digestive action happens naturally, so does the process of thinking happen naturally. So we move in the practice as we begin to rhythmically know the flow of experience. We move from the, from the involvement in the content of our thinking in those stories that can seem so real, and when, especially when we inhabit them, to seeing that in the that from moving from that content to the process of thinking, seeing that thinking appears and disappears. Again, this tendency to overlay our experience with uh, ideas and notions of what will happen in the future or what it means about us is is a, a form of delusion. And the fact is, we don't really know what will happen. We cannot predict what we will feel. Yogi Berra uh, recognized this in the famous Yogi Berra Sutra, which I will repeat again, just so we all get it. He says, it's not what we don't know that gets us into trouble. It's what we know for sure that just ain't so. So a little bit of this talk has been about about how to work with the different mental states that come up, the different difficulties of body or or heart, mind. Um, But a lot of it has been kind of descriptive, just pointing to the things that you're likely to notice and it's possible to notice in practice. And the the, the key to our capacity to do that is this observing power, this natural knowing capacity of our minds, called we call it mindfulness, that has this, this innate knowing, uh, uh, this capacity to comprehend what's occurring. And it's important that we realize that mindfulness isn't just checking off a list of, yes, this is happening, no, this is not happening, It's not superficial in any way. It's a very profound, uh, investigative quality or power, or some call it a mental factor. When mindfulness is talked about in the sutras and in some commentaries, it's talked about as, as in, this is one way that it's talked about, it's talked about as having three qualities. And perhaps this will help when, you're, when you are working with different difficulties, especially the difficulty of strong grasping or strong aversion or restlessness or, or dullness or, or this proliferation of doubt 
uh, uh, papancha, um, or any other difficulty, um, that these three qualities might be able to help you attend to your experience in a way that uh, you may find fruitful. These three qualities, as they're talked about in at least some of the commentaries, are what's called, first one is called confrontation. Of course, this is, some of the language of the teachings is very militaristic and kind of uh, patriarchal, and we'll work around that a little bit. But confrontation means simply that you let whatever it is come fully into awareness, that you're, in a sense, face-to-face with whatever is occurring. It's not like you're glancing at that pain in the knee from the side. It's not like you're glancing at that, the, the sense of that mood or that quality of, of dullness or that feeling of wrath or anger. You're not glancing from the side. You're feeling it directly, letting the mind come face-to-face with that experience. The second quality that you can bring to these different energies to help again, cut through the tendency to then build a, build a case about them, and just to be with, its, be with their nature, their essence, with their actuality. Is, the second quality is called non-superficiality. That means you sink deeply. You let yourself sink into what's being felt or observed. You don't just stay on the surface. So the example of you know, when we're having intense pain. Of course, working with pain is a delicate thing because sometimes our mind is quite strong and is able to work with pain in a very direct way. Other times, certain times of the day, our mind is weak and our concentration is not so strong, our energy is not so strong. At those times, to try to sink deeply into something and observe something very directly, you may notice that your mind just bounces off of it. And to stay with it, you just get exhausted and tired. And then you, then you can't hardly pay attention at all. So at those times when you're able to arouse some concentration, arouse some energy, to look directly, to sink deeply. And the third quality is what's called uh, sustained attention. So you experience the life of the process of whatever that experience is. In a sense, you stay with it. You don't simply notice it. We are all great noticers. We can, we can all say, yeah, that's happening, that's happening. But you, not only are we asked to feel, experience, observe what's going on, but to see how it behaves, what happens to it. So let's say you've withdrawn your attention from the, from the uh, teachers who you think are the reason why you've ended up in this retreat and with this pain in your belly or your back, and you've withdrawn, and you've you've put your attention fully on the strong aversion that you're feeling. Or right now, because this talk may be going on longer than you want it to, withdrawing your attention from the object, feeling that feeling in the heart, sinking deeply into it, and and sustaining attention through the process of that aversion. What is its nature? What happens to it quite naturally when you pay attention to it? Is there a self in it? Is it permanent? Does it, is someone making, is it, is it being driven? Is it being forced? Is it happening by itself? What is, what is true about that? So in order to discover what's true about our experience and to actually help mitigate some of the reactivity to difficult experience, 
we can use this quality of attention that is both direct and deep and sustained. And then what you discover about your experience, what you discover about all the different mental states, all the different ways of the deluded mind, no one, your understanding comes from a direct, intimate experience, not from what anyone says, not from anything that you've read. You, and it does, it's not necessary then to adopt a view about desire as being bad or as causing suffering. You start to know for yourself that the state of longing that state of, of waiting or grasping is a painful condition. Forget what's written in the texts. Forget that the Buddha said, we're like children playing in a house that's burning all around us. You know for yourself that there's, this, there's a, a certain kind of suffering in being lost in the wanting mind or in the object of wanting. So I think that's enough. I'd like to close with a few. I've actually just, actually, two poems. One refers to that... uh, that ever-present, available wakefulness that is uncreated, is natural, that can always be referred to. And we can delight in. This is from Derek Walcott called, uh, from his book Sea Grapes called Love After Love. Since the time will come when with elation you will greet yourself arriving at your own door, in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself. To the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit. Feast on your life. And last from the Zen master Chanel, from a Korean Zen master. He says, it's tragic. People have been deluded for so long. They don't recognize that their own minds are the true Buddhas. They don't recognize that their their own natures are the true Dharma. They want to search for the Dharma, yet they still look far away for holy ones. They want to search for the Buddha, but they will not observe their own minds. All the Buddhas of the past were merely persons who understood their minds. All the sages and saints of the present are likewise merely people who have cultivated and understood their minds. All future meditators should rely on this truth as well. I hope that you who cultivate the path 
will never search outside. The nature of the mind, the heart is unstained. It is originally whole and complete in itself. Let's just have a moment more of silence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.